Last week, we started our study together of the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And I told you that I believe that Abraham is the most important person in the whole Bible except for Jesus Christ, called the father of the faithful. And that means he would be our father. But now, just after the beginning of our study, we come to the first of Abram's many failures. And I think that they're set before us in Scripture in order to show us again that our salvation completely depends not on any man, but on God. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say to them, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So far the reading of God's Word. You're just like your father. If someone said that to you, would it be good or would it be bad? It could be that the person who said that just saw the father or just saw the young man do something that was very kind and very generous. And he remembered back several years to the to the older man, to the dad, and he remembered that he was a kind and generous man. And so, in tribute to his father in observing this act of kindness, he says, you're just like your father, and that virtue that was in him is now in you. On the other hand, suppose a person has just witnessed you perform a selfish act, a cruel act, and he says, you're just like your father. Because he remembers that your dad was mean, and that meanness has been 
taught to you, and it's in your soul as well. And so he says, you're just like your father. We're told in the Bible that Abram, Abraham is our father, clearly. Are you just like your father? Is that a good thing or a bad thing, if you're just like Father Abraham? Well, it actually depends on whether the person has just read the first nine verses of Genesis 12 that we studied last week. Because you recall that God comes to this pagan and he calls him and brings him to life and summons him to leave his old life and to start a new life of faith. And Abram, in punctual, prompt obedience, goes out and obeys. And he has the, we're told, he has the gospel preached to him. that blessing has come to him, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. He was blessed to be a blessing, and Abram is a blessed man. And you study through his life, and, and there's faith against adversity. The Canaanites are in the land, and he hasn't taken possession of it yet, but he's trusting God. And so if you say to you, if I say to you, you're just like your father Abram, that could be a very good thing. But in our passage today, which we just read, it seems like we're looking at a different man. What happens? Abram finds there's a shortage of food, so he's going down to the Nile area where there's going to be plenty of food. He just doesn't believe God can take care of him here. And suddenly he gets this idea that his life might be in danger. Because his wife is so hot, right? You know, Christy Brinkley, uh, you know, 60 years old. I guess Sarah was 65. Christy's not quite at 65 yet, but she's getting there. And, and, and that's his wife, and he is afraid, and he is nervous, and he becomes a coward. So much of a coward that he's forgotten all about God. And because of his fear, he lies. And because of his lies, his life gets very complicated and tangled up. And his own wife is taken for a time by another man. How can it be that on one day he's the hero of the faith? <laughs> and on the next day, he doesn't even seem to believe in God's promises at all. And not only that, as if you're half awake over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see this pattern sometimes even repeats itself in the life of Abraham. I don't know if you've ever heard of the author Sheldon Van Auken. He wrote a book entitled The Severe Mercy. And he tells of his own conversion, how he as a scholar went from atheism and agnosticism to a life of faith. And in the book, there's something remarkable. Van Auken says that the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their love, their devotion to God, their self-correction and, and, and their faith and, and their, their desire to be a blessing to other people. The best argument for Christianity is Christians, Van Auken says. And then he says, the worst argument that comes against Christianity, that is, the argument that seems to disprove Christianity more than anything else, is Christians and their hypocrisy 
and their whiny selfishness. And, their, and, 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 he, and he, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? Very often you see Abraham making the right decisions in tough times, walking by faith, and then in the mix of all this faithful living, he becomes impatient, he does things he should never do, and becomes an embarrassment to the name of God. So, are you just like your father, Abraham? According to Romans chapter 7, according to our own testimonies that we hear in the life of this church, we are. You're a chip off the old block, my friend. At times you're a person whose attitudes, whose thoughts, whose words, whose behavior are toward God and full of grace and beauty. And other times you are a person whose behavior seems not to have a mark of faith at all. So we see three things in this text you can follow in your sermon outline. That there is a painful reality, and that reality is I am at one and the same time righteous and a sinner. Number two, there is a sober warning that sin complicates and ruins lives. And the third point you'll see in the text is the surprising comfort And I'm so grateful for this, that whenever you fail in big ways and small ways, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then God is faithful to you, and He will intervene, and He will even save you from yourself. So, point number one, I am at one and the same time righteous and a sinner. We've already really unpacked that, that the Bible seems to go out of its way to show that true believers are often characterized by this lifelong conflict between two natures or two selves, the old man and the new man, the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other inside of us. And this is important for us to know because if you don't get this, if you don't get this, then either it's going to lead you to despair or it's going to lead you to unbelief when that battle confuses you. The battle rages inside of us. And you can either live in denial and become a legalist, you know, keep a couple of rules that, that you're good at keeping. That's what a legalist does. A legalist has a couple of rules that they're good at keeping that maybe some of the others, you know, don't drink and don't dance and don't smoke and don't chew and don't go with girls who do, right? And if you keep those rules, you can then look down your nose at someone else and say, I, I must be acceptable because I'm just so righteous. That's that's one way of dealing with this, but that's not the Bible's way. The Bible shows us that we are what Martin Luther described in the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified because of the work of Jesus Christ and sinner, peccator, still a sinner, wrestling, striving. Is that really what the Bible teaches? Well, let's look at some of the heroes of the faith. Let's look at David. King David, listed next to Abraham in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. David, who trusted God to give him victory over Goliath. David, who danced before the ark of God as it entered Jerusalem, worshiping him with all of his heart. David, who was so spiritually attuned 
that he would not kill Saul when Saul was trying to murder him. Remember, David finds Saul asleep in the cave, and his men said, kill him, kill him, kill him. And David says, I would not dare to lift a finger against the Lord's anointed, so righteous and in love with God that he will not even save his own life. That's David, who is the same man that looks upon Bathsheba with lust and commits adultery with her and murders her husband, something that even Pharaoh doesn't do here. This is David who neglects his family, who neglects his family to such a degree, who does not seek to disciple his children in a life of faith so that it causes so much ruin in Israel. Who else? You think of Peter. Let's go to the New Testament. You say, well, there's Peter. Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is the first to confess accurately that Jesus is the Messiah. He gets it right. This is Peter who walks on water in faith with Jesus, who, as we are told in church tradition, was crucified, hanging upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified as Jesus himself was. That's Peter. But then there is the Peter who cowers before a servant girl and with curses denies that he knows Jesus at all. There's Peter who causes division in the church because he refuses to eat a meal with Gentile Christians and makes a mess of things, you see. And we could study Noah and Isaac and Jacob and even Moses and so many in the Bible. And in church history, if you know the story of Thomas Cranmer, who was one of the great reformers of the Church of England, And he stood for the gospel, stood for the gospel, stood for the gospel until Bloody Mary came after him. And she started putting people to death at the stake. And she says, now it's your turn, Thomas Cranmer. And he says, whoa, okay, well, not so fast. And he recants his evangelical confession of faith. And let others go to the stake. Until, until his conscience got the better of him. He said, no, wait, I, I recant my recanting. And she said, then you'll go to the stake. He said, put me to the stake. And when the flames were lit, he took the hand that signed the document and he said, let this hand go in the fire first. I'm ready to play the man. Okay, you see. But you see, there's this battle, this war that goes on in the greatest of character, so don't deny it in yourself. Apostle, the Apostle Paul said, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. And Abram One of the commentators I read, uh, uh, Robert Rayburn this week, he says, I am sure Abram was muttering the very same thing to himself as he's leaving Egypt, and every time he looked at his wife, he was cut in his heart. How could I have done that to you and to God? We want to be faithful men and women, but sometimes we aren't. 
Point number two. There is in this text a sober warning for us. And the warning is that sin complicates, but righteousness simplifies. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to repeat that after me. I'm going to say it, and then I want you to re- repeat this to me so that you get at least one thing you're going to take away with you today. It's this. Sin complicates, righteousness simplifies. Say that with me. Sin complicates, righteousness simplifies. Do you believe that? This text, this story, in one sense, is a warning to us. It's like a sign that says, bridge out. Or if you're down on the south shore and and it says, dangerous undertow. What are you going to do? When you see that warning, you're not going to go to the bridge. You're going to stay away from that bridge. And when you see the undertow sign, you're not going to go diving into the water right there. That's what this sort of text is to show us. Sin complicates and ruins lives. And we need to know this. It's a warning. And there's two things here in, in this text that really jump out at me. First, that temptation is subtle. The first thing is that temptation is subtle. You know, Let's suppose uh, Pharaoh comes to Abraham and says, like Job's wife did to Job, if if Pharaoh said, curse God and die, Abram. Abram would have said, no, wait a minute, I'm not going to do that. He'd have stood, he would have said, I know my God. But it it was so much more subtle. If Nathan had been with David on the rooftop, remember Nathan was the guy who came to David about his adultery? Let's say that Nathan's standing up there and on the rooftop and they see Bathsheba taking a bath over there and, and David starts talking about his desire for her. Nathan, if Nathan says, you know, you go ahead and you do that, you're going to ruin your family, you're going to ruin Israel, you're going to make such a mess of things. Stop it! Let's get down off the roof. But, but it doesn't happen like that. Temptation is subtle. It shows you the bait. But what doesn't it show you? It doesn't show you the hook. And I think it was sneaky with Abraham, you know? And I I think you probably have some sympathy. Was he that irrational? There was a famine in the land, and there was food down in Egypt, and and, um, his wife really was beautiful. And he knew that pharaohs were not above killing husbands in order to get their wives. So temptation to, to lie and to connive and, to, and not live in faith before God sort of boxed Abram in, and it does that to me, and it does that to you. And you feel boxed in. You don't feel like you have any other way to respond as you rationalize your sin. It's subtle. It shows you the bait. It doesn't give you the hook. And you say in your mind, It's not sinful lust. I just need to meet my needs. You rationalize in your mind, this isn't hatred that I have toward that other person. I just see them accurately. You say to yourself, I'd like to pay my tithe to the church But we have to go on vacation, and vacations are expensive. Whatever it is, I don't know what you struggle with. The point is, it's subtle. 
He shows you the bait. He doesn't show you the hook. And if you allow the temptation to be projected on the secret screen of your imagination, that's how I see it. There's a projector and the temptation's shown on the secret screen in your mind and you just keep looking at it. You're in spiritual warfare and you are weak. And unless you fly to the Lord and take it to Christ, you are so susceptible. And the second thing you see from this text is that temptation leads to evil consequences. Abraham was a man of faith, and he was a man of courage. We've seen that. But the temptation turns him into a coward. It turns him into a betrayer of his wife, a defiler of God's covenant. What a mess. And it all just started out because he was nervous. You know what? Abraham learned something. I remember learning many times, as a, especially as a teenage boy. It's so much easier to get into a lie than to get out of a lie. Is that true? Have you ever learned that? It's so much easier to get into a lie than to get out of a lie. I, 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 only because I was a teenage boy. I don't know. I don't have the experience of teenage girls. I'm sure they lie too. But Teenage boys lie a lot. Men lie a lot. And men lie to women a lot. Do you know why men lie? Because, because they say what they think the woman wants to hear. You say what you think she wants to hear. And then what happens when what you thought she wanted to hear doesn't square with what really happened? She's all upset. But, but didn't you tell... I told you what I thought you wanted to hear. Yeah, but it didn't square with what was true. It's so much easier to get into the mess than to get out of it with any kind of temptation. And lying for Abraham took on a life of its own. And before he knew it, his wife was gone. His marriage was over. And by taking Pharaoh's gifts, he had really sold himself out to this king. And he could have died a rich, yeah, rich, but lonely old man in Egypt. And what a mess. No seed, no line comes from him. And the messianic hope is lost. What a mess. And the Bible shows us with David, as it did with Abram, as it, as it did with Peter, uh, the temptation never suggests the messy aftermath of what's going to happen. So you have a brief period of relief, and then there is bondage that you cannot escape without shame. Do you remember I showed this video of uh, a man tempted to adultery a couple of weeks ago? And what happened in that video is he had two choices, and, and he, he thought through what it would be like if he went into the adultery, and then he thought, what are the consequences of this? And he thought through the consequences of it. It was very powerful, wasn't it? It was very powerful. Temptation never says, now you think about what will happen if you do this. And Abraham didn't. And his wife is in the palace of Pharaoh. And he is a mess. 
That's point number two, sin complicates and makes a mess of things. But there is the surprising comfort. And I love this passage. Oh, my friends, I hope now you will pay close attention because what we see here is that because God is faithful to Abram, not because Abram is faithful to God, but because God is faithful to His promises, He will intervene and He will rescue Abram. He will redeem him. You know, if, if, if it had stayed a secret much longer, Sarah becomes Pharaoh's concubine, and Isaac will never be born. The promised land will not be owned by the, the people of God, and there is no Jesus Christ. There is no Jesus who brings the blessing to the nations. If you have children, I hope that you've read through the Chronicles of Narnia with them. And in that first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is that one character named Edmund. Adults, if you don't have children or your children are grown, still read the Chronicles of Narnia. Go ahead and buy them, read them, or borrow them from me. They're worth reading. And Edmund is this very selfish little guy who gets himself in a horrible mess with the queen uh, the, the, the evil queen, and gets in such a mess and such a mess. And in the end, Edmund must be punished for his sin. And do you remember his sister, Lucy? And Lucy comes to Aslan in chapter 12, Aslan, the Christ figure, and she says, Please, Aslan. Can anything be done to save Edmund? Aslan replies, All shall be done. I love that. Don't you love that? And the, I won't spoil the rest of the story for you. But all is done. And Edmund is saved. Edmund is spared. Edmund is redeemed. As Martin said at the beginning of the service, the Redeemer buys him back. And here in our text, God intervenes in some way, and it's not without pain, and it's not without shame. And this is, again, the ways, it's not that God is out to get Abraham, or He's out to get you, because if you're His child, He's not out to get you, He's not out to get you, but just the natural consequences of the mess the natural consequences of it all is that there is pain and there is shame. There's pain and there's shame that he goes through. Just, it just happens. And who brings this? Pharaoh does. God uses a pagan unbeliever to rebuke the believer. Has that ever happened to you? That's happened to me. I even remember as a new Christian... There was a young woman, we were friends, she was not a believer and she had no real interest in uh, Christianity, but we were talking and she said, well, what, what is important to you about this religion? What is important to you about this? And I'm talking about this, that, and the other thing, and suddenly she slams her hand down on the table. Her name was Eileen. She slams her Eileen slams her hand down on the table and says, Yenshko, you don't even know the most important thing of all. It's about the love of Christ. Your religion is all about the love of Christ. That's what you should be telling me about. 
She said, read 1 Corinthians 13. I said, okay, okay, I will. And Pharaoh rebukes Abram. How humiliating. The believer is corrected and put back on the path to the promised land by the unbeliever. Wow. But God demonstrates his great salvation bringing him back, and he gets on his way. Just as hundreds of years later, Israel will be released by another Pharaoh to come back into the promised land. Just as God will bring you one day into the true Canaan, into heaven itself, in spite of all your failures and all your faults, he will bring you. Why? Because there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abram, who lived and died and rose again in your place and in mine. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Luke twenty-two thirty-one, And it is that place where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Oh, Lord, I will go to the death for you, he says. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He calls him Simon here. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Sift you like wheat. He could have said, to rattle your cage. And you remember what the next phrase is Jesus said? He says, but I have prayed for you. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I love that. Don't you love that? Jesus says, okay, Simon, yeah, it's going to happen, but I have prayed for you. My intercessory work is what preserves you to eternal life. When we have communion, remember I say to the whole church, the blood of, it is the blood of Christ shed for you which preserves you to eternal life. Drink and be satisfied. That's what preserves us. The work of Jesus And he says, I have prayed for you. And he continues now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That is our hope. It's so beautiful. When you read what the New Testament says about Abraham, nowhere is he referred to as the coward of Egypt. But when he is remembered, how is he remembered? As the father of the faithful. Uh, Why? How can this be? Because when God looks at him, he looks through Jesus Christ. And he looks at you. How does he look at you? He sees you through Jesus Christ. This is the most practical thing you need to know. I could teach you all about handling stress or how to be fit or how to manage your money or how to get along and resolve conflict. The most important thing you need to know is that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father and his bleeding wounds bring your forgiveness And his constant high priestly intercession present you to the Father. And because of that, you live. You live. Now go live for him. Amazing love the Father has for Abraham. Amazing love the Father has for you. Next week, we'll see Abram back on track. We will see him back on track, but don't miss this message today. Yeah, sin complicates. Don't go that way. Righteousness simplifies. But when you fall, he will not let you go, but he draws you back to himself, and he saves us. He saves us. Shall we pray together?
Our Father, we are like the earthly great-great-great-great-grandfather, spiritual grandfather of Abraham. He was a saint and he was a sinner. And we learn here, Lord, that you say we can't rely on any man, we can't rely on Abraham. We rely on you, you to save us, O seed of Abraham, Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to run to you, to come to you gladly and quickly. For you have paid for us so that we, we who were guilty like Abraham, we may go free. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.